All right, so yeah, it's uh, Q&A time, and uh, we'll do this, I don't know, for 30, 35, 40 minutes. I don't know. We'll see how long, and peel off at any point if you need to go or just find this. If you're like, man, you guys were right. It is better on one and a half speed um, than you need to go. Uh, we totally get it. So um, there's a microphone here, and you're welcome to ask anything at all, anything about, um, yeah, anything about anything. Um, particularly this episode or other stuff. Um, it's all fair game. It's kind of an ask anything moment. And if you don't have much to ask, then we will all get out of here sooner. So. All right. Hi. Um, she so came prepared. Look at this. I like well, it. Oh, well, I, I didn't like want to forget my question. Yeah. Um, so I was curious about the doctrine of total depravity and how that plays into this concept of self-love. Do you feel like this is negating the doctrine of total depravity? That's a great question. So total depravity, uh, best understood, has to do specifically with uh, salvation of the self. And most good Reformed theologians are going to understand total depravity in a way that's more, could be accurately described as total inability, meaning that when our hearts are dead because of sin, we are unable to give ourselves new hearts, we're unable to conjure faith on our own, and we're unable to save ourselves. And so the Spirit of God comes gives us a new heart, gives us a gift of faith, and awakens the heart that, uh, it's kind of like we talk about how like we do the dying and the Father does the rising. Uh, spiritually speaking, we are dead and the Spirit does the rising. And so total depravity does not mean that we are as sinful as we could be or that we are um, sinful in every regard to, of ourselves, but it means that we are totally unable to save ourselves and we're unable to regenerate ourselves. And so I actually like, I know that total depravity being totally depraved can be misunderstood in that it's like going, nobody does anything good ever. Uh, Christians can only do bad things, or non-Christians can only do bad things because they're totally depraved. Um, but that's actually in tension with the Reformed doctrine of common grace, which is that like God actually preserves uh, like the, the rain and the sunshine on the just and the unjust alike. And so God's benevolence and their ability to be culture makers still exists for Christians and non-Christians together. And so um, when I have taught through the doctrines of grace, like total depravity, I kind of say like most people talking about total depravity mean total inability, not necessarily like absolute without exception, depraved to the core. Um, and even like in Isaiah, it talks about even our righteous deeds are like filthy garments. Uh, that's talking about with regards to our salvation. You're not gonna contribute to being saved by being a good person or trying good things. Um, because other non-Christians throughout the Bible do good, do, non-Christians do good things and they're called good. They're not always called uh, unright, like filthy <laughs> rags. So yeah. great question, Danny. Can I ask another one? Another question? Well, Nobody's in line that's behind greedy. you so you can keep asking questions. <laughs> yeah, you, you can, can go ahead and line up if you have more. Uh. Um, I, I was just wondering on a really practical level, like working with kids, students, my own children, I see a lot of um, self-hatred, self-harm, um, just a lack of understanding of who they are as image bearers of Jesus. And so I'm just curious, like, how do you practically take this as a really good, like, philosophical concept and bring this down to a 14-year-old girl? Help. Yeah. Um, that's a great question. Um, I mean, what's so hard is that, um, you know, when you, when you hate yourself, it, there's not a lot that can be said to make you feel better. 
right? You just, um, you get locked in these kind of doom cycles. And, um, you know, I, I had a conversation um, with my youngest daughter, who's eight, so not 14, and she was, um, without getting into the details of it, she was uh, telling me about something about herself that she really doesn't like. And um, her and Molly, or Molly and I were trying to tell her, well, that's not true, well, that's not true. Yes, it is, yes, it is, yes, it is. And there was, like, kind of nothing. I mean, you're kind of in the crazy cycle. You're just not going to break through it almost. Um, and so um, I, I said to her, I kind of, you know, through a Hail Mary, and said, uh, uh, funny, her name's Mary. I said, Mary, um, I said, you know, there's actually somebody that really agrees with you about this. She's like, really? And I said, yeah. And he hates you. Everything about you he thinks is awful. And he would like to destroy you. She's like, who? Right? And this is an eight-year-old. So I said, Satan. He hates you. And he totally agrees with everything you're saying. And I know that you don't like Satan. And I know that you don't follow Satan. But when you tell yourself this, you're telling yourself the thing that Satan would say. And... um Again, she's eight. I think that's different than a 14-year-old. I think that's different than, you know, but it, it at least broke through for a moment to go, whoa, I, that's like, yeah, that's a, I don't want to line up with him, right? Team God or Team Satan. Well, I don't want to be on Team Satan. Um, and yet, how, do you, how, do you, how does that break through somebody that really is locked in this cycle of, uh, of self-hatred? I, I'm not really sure. I mean, I think that's probably where we need community. You need people to ask good questions. You need people to be a safe place for people to really talk about how they're feeling. Yeah, it's really difficult when your consistent experience of people is that they don't love you, and then you get told your main God's image, you're valuable, and like, well, if that's true, then why do people treat me like this? And so a big part of that, like, is a relational process of people being experienced as treated with value. Like, and so you being a mentor, highly invest in these people's lives, continuing to treat them with the dignity and value they deserve, part of that, that some of that unbiblical view of self is not good is learned relationally and it's unlearned relationally. So that's a big part of it. The whole question of like, just so you know, there's someone highly invested in making you hate yourself. And that person is Satan slash the marketing department who's trying to sell you stuff all the time, right? <laughs> yeah. That, hey, hate yourself. And, but with this product, you know, and so like, a lot of times consumption of media leads to hatred of self because you see all these commercials that's like, this is you without this eye cream. This is you with this eye cream, right? And then you, you buy it and then you're excited and you still hate yourself so now you feel stupid and ugly, right? And so, and so it's a cycle of like total, like just, dis and so you believe what they're selling and then you buy it and then you feel dumb and you, but like the messaging isn't really addressed. And so uh, current teenagers have more people and images to compare themselves to than anybody in the history of the world. Uh, even 50, 60 years ago, you could compare yourself to the people in your school. Now you can compare yourself to a billion people all at once. And so, and you're comparing yourself to two-dimensional, edited, digitized people who even their flaws are selectively shared in the name of authenticity. Like it's still part of the brand. And so I would just acknowledge that 
teens on the concept of self-worth have more to overcome right now than I think in history. Adolescence has never been easy, but I think because of digital media and how everywhere it is, there's just literally more comparison temptation all over the place. And there's some, like, somehow... Somebody should study that. Somebody should write a dissertation about that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah but... Yeah, you mean the 14-year-old didn't want to read my dissertation? That is so weird. I didn't even see that coming. Yeah, but I think there's this other aspect that somehow we as a current social moment have decided that what makes us valuable is the ways that we're different than other people. Whereas, biblically speaking, what makes us valuable is what we have in common with everybody. That we are all made in God's image. That your dignity and value is not rooted in your specialization, which economics wants that to be revalue is. It's not rooted in your unique contribution, which is what like the historians want your unique dignity and value to be, but it's rooted in our sameness. It's not in our difference. It's in our sameness. So that's our, our dignity and value. And so I think the comparison as a starting point is already starting in the wrong place, that it's sameness. Even when Adam sees Eve, it's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. His instinct is not... Uh, finally, Whoa, she's different. It's not like, wow, look how different she is than me. I like the parts of her that are different. That's not his instinct. His instinct is like, finally, someone like me, all these animals, and another human. Praise the Lord for another, another same. And so men and women are way more similar than they are different, especially compared to the rest of the creation. And so I think sameness and being able to celebrate sameness, not difference, is part of that process. Hi. Um, so for self-expression specifically, like artistically, is that contrary to self-denial or um, is it like a form of self-love or is it neither? So you talk about artistically, which artistry tends to be with representation and projection and revelation. Like you're trying to see differently or see the same thing differently or uh, if you think about like, the three big categories of goodness truth and beauty the artist is usually speaking a language of beauty but they're trying to access truth through beauty and so self-expression is usually seeing through your eyes something or reality in a fresh or different way than the way other people see it and so i don't see artistic self-expression as that as much as like the deciding who you are apart from a community and doubling down on yourself your self-determinated or self-determined determinates in other words your self-determined self-assessed view of who i am like i think that has to be discerned somewhat communally um i would not write in artistic self-expression as like what David Brooks calls self-expressionism, which is like there's this me in there, I need to find it and let it out. And if anybody tries to correct it, that's called oppression. So I think that like uh, I was just speaking at this camp and I quoted um, a Kendrick Lamar lyric in my sermon and some kid came up to me afterwards all mad that I quoted Kendrick Lamar because Kendrick Lamar um, wears a crown of thorns and portrays himself as Jesus on the album cover. How could you quote someone who's obviously uh, a blasphemer? And so, like, that to me is rooted in, like, a naive understanding of artistic truth-telling because the way that Kendrick Lamar portrays himself on the album is he's talking about how he has all this generational trauma and he's going to do the work to break the generational trauma, saving his kids from what he experienced, right? And so he's calling himself... Christological by metaphor. He's not saving anybody. He's not saying he's saving people from their sins. He's not saying he's the Lord Jesus Christ reincarnate. He's saying, I am breaking generational pattern. And in that sense, that's a salvific act. And so, like, I think that's a, 
like even giving that to like an adult man who's trying to break a generational pattern and, and appropriating an artistic image as a way of telling like the value of breaking generational patterns can be valuable. And so I think that's kind of what the artist does is they say the true thing, but with a fresh lens of beauty in a way that can shock or disorient. And so I, I wouldn't close those, the same things. Good question though, Ryan. Hi, it took me a while to like process your answer. So I, I guess I wanted to like get maybe a little more specific. Um, I recently came across a like Christian creative collective thing. And one of their belief statements was that um, in a way of countering culture, they believe that um, the gospel is about self-denial and that is contrary to um, expression of the self, um, you know, kind of almost saying that like our form of artistic expression in our culture is self-worship. And I do think that's true to a degree, but I, I thought it was frustrating to think that um, all expression of self is idolatrous to a degree. I, I don't even know if that's exactly what they're saying, but I thought it was um, somewhat representative of some Christian culture that uh, expressing oneself and even you know, expressing the parts of yourself that are unique to everyone else um, is wrong or maybe even um, selfish. I, I thought that was, um, I was just wondering what your view on that was, I guess. Yeah, I feel equally frustrated by that. I do feel like that could be like a Christian platitude of like, well, obviously self-denial is bad or self-denial is good, so expressing yourself is bad. And it feels like, bada bing, bada boom, got him, you know, but it's like, like we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, like, when you understand the multi-layered nature of self, that there's self is designed, created, particular, and that's like the baseline that we're coming from, like, you can't look at, start there and go like, yeah, and acting on the behalf of the particular ways that God made you is foolish. Like, I, I feel like you couldn't do that. So, so I think that'd be simplistic. I'd say there's that, probably an aspect of what they're getting at that's true, but it really lacks nuance and layer. And I think uh, we'll just shame a bunch of people who have gifting into not using their gifting, which would be a, a bummer for a lot of reasons. Yeah, it seems to me like the, the problem is with self-expression as the highest and most important good. Right? So, like, I mean, I think about our preaching. You and I preach very differently, Seth. And we're both trying to be ourselves, but we're not trying to express ourselves through our preaching. Yeah. If, if I tried to be more like you, I don't think that would serve anybody. If you tried to be more like me, that wouldn't serve anybody. But if either of us were just trying to express ourselves, you go, well, that's not great. You know, so self, anyway. Yeah, if it because you're at the end of the day still trying to serve the common good with what you're putting on the altar, right? And so, like, if I'm in my preaching, which is a, f a form of artistry, if I'm just like, well, I'm just being myself, but it's serving nobody, I have to ask the question, like, well, what's the point then, right? <laughs> is it, and it's just might as well just do it in a phone booth and call it preaching and nobody cares, right? So, yeah. so I think that's part of it is like the self expression that serves people, that builds others up, that's. For, like, and even if sometimes people don't receive that, it's, I think it's still others-oriented. It's not just like I, you know, it's not like a bowel movement. Well, I just have to, to get something out of me, right? Um, but it's, it's, it's going, there's something that I want to create that's going to benefit other people, and I figure out what that is. 
So can you talk a little bit about naivety as well? So you had mentioned that negligence kind of like leans into that, that murder phrase. In a time where information is so prevalent, I think something we witness a little bit is people who are either willfully naive or willfully ignorant so that the responsibility to love others is not put on them. So would that... Would, would you say naivety and or willful ignorance is included in that negligence passion? Yeah, so the, there's a couple different biblical paradigms here. So when we're talking about Ritzak murder, that's, and it would be in the paradigm of sin uh, and innocence. That's a paradigm, biblical paradigm. Like there are righteous and they're unrighteous. There's innocent and they're sinful. Another huge biblical paradigm that I think doesn't get enough play in evangelical subculture is the wisdom folly paradigm or like the in wisdom is the word hakma which could be translated skill or even talent or ability uh, but it's like skill of life like the ability to function well in the world uh, and folly is the opposite of that it's skilllessness it's like the word folly could be translated stupid it's ineptitude um, but mostly the fool like the wise person is someone who uh, receives and seeks out instruction. Uh, they, there's prudence. Um, they increase in learning. They obtain or acquire guidance. They go and get it. And so naivety or willful naivety um, would be folly, whereas you know, the fools despise wisdom and instruction. They don't want to know. Like It's like I'd rather do the ostrich thing, head in the ground, kind of do my own thing, blinders on. And so there's some aspect of you don't understand naivety, but also just a desire like, I don't want to be corrected, I don't want to hear, I don't want to know. Uh, that can be a problem. On, so there's like probably like a, there's the diminishing marginal return on information, right? Whereas you know, if you watch a little news, you have something to pray about. If you watch a ton of news, it leads to crippling anxiety and over-responsibility and there's too much to do, I can't do anything, right? And, and so I've, discerning, like same with like nutrition, you care about your nutrition, the right amount. Uh, if you weigh and measure your food your whole life, that's called being anal and it's not kind <laughs> and you can't participate in society. You know what I mean? So, like, so, so I feel like there's caring about your nutrition too much, like enough to like steward your health, then there's caring about not enough and that very regard, is that what we're getting at with naivety? Well, I was thinking ignorance? like specifically in regards to self-love. So I think if you're trying to deny yourself to love others, but you're doing so from a place of ignorance that you could solve is their moral culpability. It's like there's a lot of advice that goes out there, right, where you, I think a lot of Christians have good intentions, and I think they really do think they're doing the right thing, but then, you know, 5, 10, 15 years down the road, they look back and go, oh, well, I was way off base, and I think, you know, well, good for them that you get there, but I think there's a whole group of us that don't ever... Like, do we have moral culpability or what's our responsibility to check our own assumptions when it comes to our, our willful ignorance so that we're those three selves, right? How do, what's our responsibility for gauging our wisdom when it comes to which one of the three selves we're operating in? That's kind of what I was well, it seems like part of the distinction is willful ignorance versus a blind spot, right? Like, if it's willful ignorance, like, I know that I'm choosing to be ignorant here versus here's this thing that I... I don't really know about. And that's where you need community to say, hey, you know, there actually might be this gap. 
that doesn't totally, I mean, that's just it, my little contribution to your great question. Anytime there's willful ignorance, I think there's moral culpability. And it, anytime there's, like, I don't think that the way that God judges us is it's just kind of on-off switch. I do think there's, like, some sliding scale of culpability, responsibility, based on what we could have done differently, things like that. Like, uh, I was, a couple of weeks ago, months, it was months ago, because it was tolerable, we were outside at Gilbert Regional Park, and this, you know, couple handed, was, was fishing, and they handed my son a fish, and he's like, I saved it, you know, you know, and then, you know, <laughs> then this little fish dies, you know, and he's like, what happened? You know, I'm like, well, you killed it, son, you know, <laughs> it's dead, you know, he's like, what's dead? And I'm like, that, that's dead, you know, and so, so like, if some adult just holds that and watches it die, like, there's probably not the healthiest emotional thing, it's certainly not making an investment into well-being, especially if you don't plan on eating it, because it, there's nothing going on there, um, but it's, like, if I just watch something die for the fun of it, Versus my son doing it, I think yeah. God understands like the gap there. All right, any anyone else? Maybe we maybe we won't release this bonus episode. <laughs> there were no questions. Any questions about anything else you're curious about? It's when you get a bonus at work and it's disappointing. That's going to be this <laughs> bonus episode. It's a gift that keeps giving all year long. All right. I just got to say, we go to church with some really smart people. So I'm asking a more practical question about the podcast itself. Mm. Um, I first wanted to know if Luke looks at Seth's notes before the podcast. Are you familiar with what he's researched? And do you guys talk or spend time before this little prep that you demonstrated today? Or is it all impromptu and kind of like we saw tonight? Uh, it seems like about 80 to 90% of the time, it's kind of what you saw tonight. We debated, like, should we do it that way or not? And it was like, hey, let's let, let it set everyone behind the curtain. You know, sometimes um, through Slack, he'll say, here's what I'm thinking, or here's some key ideas or something like that. But he's always got a lot more either in his head. A lot of times it's in his head or on, you know, his computer or whatever. Um, so, so what I'm looking at right here is a notes thing. It says self-love. Agree with God, Exodus 2013, Deuteronomy 19, Deuteronomy 22, the elves. That's my notes. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I, this I, is a recurring critique I have of Seth. Is, and I, uh, and I have a word search open in my Logos <laughs> Bible software for what's sock, which is the word murder. So I see all the times the word murder appears. Uh, so yeah. a, a lot of it, honestly, I think a big part of it is Luke's question asking steers me a lot more than I... Uh, I, I mean, I, I'm very aware, but he steers me and it draws it. Well, out. I realized partway through the last episode, I forgot the thing he said was going to be the last thing. And so I couldn't remember if we were there already or how close we were to it. Yeah. I don't remember even what you said now. Yeah, so a lot of it is like I have a gut sense of something that'd be interesting to talk about. And he asks really good questions and it ends up becoming interesting. So that's the way it really goes. Yeah. And I, I don't know that, I mean, I suppose we could prepare more. A lot of it is just we got a lot of other stuff to do and you know, we don't always prepare. I mean, uh, you know, like the, the episode we did after Roe versus Wade, we didn't wing that, you know, after the, the shooting in Texas, you know, we have a lot more like, Hey, let's talk through how we're going to do this a little bit, but yeah, mostly it's kind of like what you saw. How has the uh, podcast affected your formation and your relationship? 
That's a great question. <laughs> uh, I think because we started it in probably one of the hardest times of leading the church, like in the wake of the COVID stuff. Sure. That's when we first started it. And there's just a lot of tension around like a lot of the uh, gospel and race stuff, the BLM stuff, those types of things. And so it's kind of a good way to like put a little meat on the bone and be another touch point with the folks. Um, I think if anything, it's helped me appreciate like the, a lot of feedback we get is like, man, your guy, you and Luke just sound really natural together and it seems easy. And I'm like, well, it is. So I just may be grateful for how easy that is. Uh, I think it's helped me appreciate just difference in gifting that I feel like I, Luke asked really good questions that I wouldn't have thought of asking. And I, uh, like I was reading that bobbing book, Falling Asleep, <laughs> as my nighttime reading about four weeks ago, and I was like, oh, we'll do self-love for the king culture thing. That's, that was, <laughs> this is put me to sleep. Uh, let's do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah, so that's a popular word nowadays. We'll talk about that one. So, yeah. so it's just, that's kind of how that goes. So, it, I mean, for me, it's, it, I mean, these conversations, I learn a lot, and they're really interesting, and they get me thinking, and um, that's what I appreciate about it, is I think you need different things at different stages of your formation and growth, and, um, you know, I think you guys listen to this, if you, you know, to whatever degree you listen to it, because it connects with stuff you feel like maybe you can't engage with in a hundred other places. And so I appreciate that. And, uh, yeah, and I, it's really just fun to, it's fun to do it together. So, and it's been fun when Matthew's joined us as well. Matthew Brazelton, everybody. Yeah. I just have a question about, um, the four o'clock service. Um, so we've had, what has it been like a month or so now? Uh-huh. I'm having, going back to three services. And I guess I was just curious, like, how is that going for everybody that's serving for you? Is it meeting your expectations? Um, and then for those that want to serve upcoming, like any tips on how to last through all three services and what you're doing <laughs> to kind of practically, I don't know, self-preserve? Oh, so, yeah. there you go. Yeah, well, the first question was, Four how's it going? Service, how's it going? Yeah, I, th- I think the main goal, 4 o'clock service, well, there's really two main goals, so... There's not really a main goal, I guess. <laughs> the The need was we need to create space in the morning for more people to come. That has happened, so that's great. The hope was that we'd create an environment at 4 o'clock that people were happy and excited to go to, and that would create lingering, gathering environments so that not everyone at the 4 was there like, the church asked me to do this, and so I'm doing it. Like, But there'd be like actual like, joyful participation and going, we create new rhythms for family, and this is working for us. And I think both those things have happened. I think Robin's stuff on the fun after four has gone great. I think um, it is more taxing like I th- on the kids' team, um, on the music team, uh, and on the preaching team, which I don't feel as bad for the music team and the preaching team because they like... Um, people go like, look, they're still serving all day long, whereas the kids' team tends to kind of accidentally end up in obscurity. Um, but at least when I'm talking to the kids' team, they've been pleasantly surprised with how, like, the staffing of that went compared to... I mean, it's still harder to staff that than the other services, but it's l- not as much harder as it was when we did the 5 o'clock. So. Yeah, so rewinding history. I mean, when we did the evening service uh, years ago, it was always thought of as a stopgap. We'll do this for a while until we get in the new building. And then we did it for long enough that people developed enough of a culture around it. But it really inched up in terms of growth. 
And we, with this one, we said, let's try to launch it big enough that it's sustainable right out of the gate in terms of the number of people that come as well as the way that volunteers are supported and cared for so that it can be, um, you know, not something that everybody hates, you know, who has to pull it off, you know. And I imagine, uh, Laura, there might be some weeks where we, uh, where we feel like this is harder than others. Um, you know, so, so far it's, it's pretty, I'm, I'm very encouraged by it. Your other question was about just uh, rhythms and stuff like that. Um, you know, I joke that sometimes Sunday's now like a three shower day, you know, in the morning and then after, you know, when I get home after you know, lunchtime and then when I get home again, that's way too much information. Um, the last one I used tea tree oil shampoo. It feels really good. It feels like my reward for a, a, a hard work, uh, a day of hard work. Um, yeah, self-love. like I don't. That's self love. The teacher. I don't. Uh, and this won't help you, Mo, when you start singing and stuff. I don't sing all services, which really stinks because I love to sing, but my voice can't really handle it if I sing hard and preach hard all three services. So, um, but the thing I will say related to the the first part of the question is because there's a great energy at the four o'clock when you're preaching or leading, and it's a little you you're not feeling your hundred percent. The, the energy of the room and the people helps bring you along. So that's been, that's been fun. Yeah, at least for me personally, most of my friends and my family goes to the four. So it, it feels like the most, I'm most personally invested there. So it's, I don't feel like I have to like drum up the energy as much because I'm like my most connected community is at this one. And so it's easier to uh, not be tempted to mail it in. Um, well, and, and the fun after four for me too, it's, it's given me a chance, like I can meet a new family and go, Hey, hang out here for just a second. Let me go introduce you to four people. I can't really do that at nine. I've been able to kind of do that for years. So it feels like this sort of smaller church dynamic within the larger church that frankly, I kind of miss and appreciate. And anyway, all right, next question. So back to self-love. Um, Fine. I, <laughs> I wanted to talk about my shower routine. Okay. Well, um, I was wondering if you guys could give two really practical ways in which we can engage with maybe friends or family who are really caught up in the negative self-love mm. ways. Maybe one from each of you. Like, like the self-indulgent self-love yeah, kind of way? Yeah. Um, it's really prevalent on social media and with a lot of our friends. And I feel kind of at an impasse. Like, I don't know how to engage well with them in a way that wouldn't cause them to retreat further. So, like, if you could give two, each of you give one, like a practical way in which we can engage with them in conversations about this that might point them more towards a healthy self-love. I'll go first. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, I mean, there's tons about the nature of your relationship and that that I don't know, and this may not work. I think an interesting question would be, uh, when will you know you've gone too far in loving yourself? And I think it'd be interesting for someone to figure out, is, do they have an answer to that? Is there some indication of what that would be? Um, that's the first thing that comes to mind that maybe you could have a conversation related to that. So that, that as maybe a practical question. Yeah. The, 
two things popped in my head. One is they're obviously reacting to something and saying, like, how did you begin this self-love process? Because there's probably going to be some sense of deficit or experience of deficit or rationalization of deficit. And rather than kind of swinging all the way to self-love, what may be needed is to grieve the fact that they felt they needed to do that, go that direction in the first place. Um, like, hey, I'm sorry your boss worked you too hard, or hey, I'm sorry that your previous spouse, you know, degraded you, or I'm sorry that, like, and so there might be, like, connecting about the grief that, like, was the seed that grew into this, um, and that, that would be a really intimate thing to go there. If the person's a Christian, like, I, I think sometimes you're going, like, hey, I hear what you're saying, we're made, like, agree as far as you can, we're made in God's image, we should care about ourselves. Like, Matthew 16 talks about whoever wants to save his life has to lose it. What does that mean? And, yep. I, and I feel like, like, I hear what you're saying, but also this, help me, like, think raising the tension and saying, how do you process this? And inviting them into the tension and seeing what they do. Because um, I feel like that's, even like we talked about the episode, is like, there's this tension. And to solve it would probably create problems. But you live in it, like, self-regard and lose your life. So I'll just invite them into the tension if you can. Cool. So uh, you guys both as pastors serve in kind of a prophetic office where you speak on behalf of God to a group of people. Um, I'm curious if, if you could be, if, if the Lord could an, anoint your voice in one, for one specific message to one specific group of people. Oh, gosh. Now, obviously you, you say a lot to a lot of groups of people, but who would you want, if, if you could only really, really make an impact in one place with one message, who would you speak to and what would it be? If you could only sing one worship song for the rest of ever. <laughs> That's a good question. It, it's interesting. I don't, I think I'm thrown off a little bit by framing it as prophetic. Um, I mean, what comes to mind is uh, Jesus is a treasure. I mean, I feel like that's the message I want to say over and over. Um, and I guess I'd want to say it to people who uh, couldn't imagine that that could be true. What? What I, what I was trying to say is, like, if you look at the <laughs> current state of the church, where, where are you trying uh, to form the most? Like, where, okay. where would you like to... So you could totally play off of that. I just, that's what I was thinking. Was there, sorry, was there a right answer? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> just, I'm just messing with you, Matthew. I wouldn't do that to anybody. Leading the witness, Your Honor. Yeah. Yeah, let me think about that while Seth talks. I keep coming back to, in my own thinking, like these, the big three idols of sex, money, and power, and just how they overpromise, underdeliver, and then destroy you. And with my non-Christian friends, my Christian friends, like I just see how chasing money, chasing sex, chasing power, it seems like the pursuit of the good life, but it just destroys you. And if I could like help people see this is going to destroy you before it destroyed them, and to see like these things are good in the right context, but like I just, it's, I feel like in your 20s and like teens, 20s, like people just chase after like sex like crazy. Then your 30s and 40s, people are chasing after money. And then, like, after that, there people are clinging to influence and power. And and, and so some of it's generational. Some of it's, like, the arc of life. Uh, but I only see those things destroying marriages, destroying hearts. 
and they do make promises and they do under deliver. So I, I, in, in my preaching and in ministry, I just, I keep coming back to that three things. Um, Richard Foster's book, Sex, Money, Power, is I think planted that seed for me a long time ago. And in the life of our church and in like my just personal ministry, I just see, like I feel like in, my, in your teens and 20s, you hear about how those things destroy your life. And now I'm in the season of my life where I'm seeing people's lives being destroyed. And it's kind of like, yeah, the seeds you plant in your 20s are now bearing fruit and the fruit is death. And hoping, like, I feel like my main evangelism strategy is to love people and then when their idols fail, be there and point them to Jesus. And I'm seeing that happen more and more on a regular basis, that that those idols are failing. And the fact that you turn to Jesus doesn't eliminate the consequences or the pain that comes from having run, run after those things. So the sex, money, power dynamic to me feels like very operative and, and live and going, this will destroy you. Please believe me before it does. I don't know if I have a lot to add other than I just, I feel um, the things that grieve me most about the church, I feel most powerless to think that I'll say anything that'll make a difference. Um, and so I mostly am trying to pray and preach the word and help lift up Jesus and pray that somehow it breaks through because I feel like there's times when I've kind of jumped up and down on a, some area of idolatry in us and the people that most need to hear it can't. And so it's like, well, I don't know. <laughs> come, come Lord, you know, send the spirit. I don't know. So. Good question. All right, here we go. I think we're nearing the end. Um, yeah. Um, so as like a teenager in high school, there are a lot of like just small like comments going around just throughout the day, like in classes and everything. Um, just like comments of like self-hatred and kind of like very like bad like views of yourself and of other people. So I was wondering how to like kind of avoid taking those comments like personally and try to keep a like I am a child of God like mindset like not letting those like affect my mindset of myself yeah first I'm sorry I have to carry that and process that that's not fair I going back to Luke's comment when he was talking about uh, with his daughter there's just reality that there are certain people who agree with all those negative comments and they're satanic, they're demonic, Satan means accuser. And so I think being able to identify these like comments as explicitly demonic and explicitly satanic is I think part of that. Of um, Yeah, there's an enemy out there, like Ephesians 6.12 says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, we wrestle against the spiritual forces of darkness that reign over the present darkness. That the reason your peers make those comments is because of idolatrous, dehumanizing ideologies that trickle down into teenager hearts and make them cruel and unkind and cutting and critical. And so there's an, a sense in which like Jesus says, forgive them Lord, they know not what they do, that you hear these comments about yourself and when you have Christ's eyes, you go, I have pity on these people because I'm a child of God, a queen of heaven, called us a of dominion, and they're blind to that. Like, there's this reality. Like, my dad would make this comment when he was, um, 
teaching me about alcohol. He's drinking a beer at dinner and said, do you see me drinking this beer? And I was like, yes. And he's like, so when your dumb loser friends think they're cool for drinking beers, just remember like your dad does it. It's not that cool. Like that was like, that was my, that was my dad's alcohol talk. Uh, and, and so I, I would say something similar. Like when your dumb loser friends say demonic things to you, realize like they're the idiots, not you. And then, and and uh, that's not to necessarily disparage them as like, because they're also made in God's image, but the, their minds have been taken captive by demonic forces and they're participating in that and they're complicit in it. Um, but they're the fools. And I think there's some measure of that. Like you can take it not personally because you believe that they're the fools and not you. Um, and there's also an aspect that like some of the comments sting because they resonate with things you already believe about yourself. Right, like if someone called me four eyes, I've never had glasses in my life. So I'm like, well, obviously that doesn't sting. Someone calls me short and it hurts my feelings. It's like, ugh, you know, like, you know, like there's sometimes like the comments that sting uh, reveal even unbiblical views I have about myself or unhelpful views. That, I mean, it's not unbiblical to think I'm short because I am, but I think, <laughs> but I mean like that that would lead to some view of self-hatred. Like God makes people different heights and he does that on purpose and in his wisdom, he makes people different and that's part of the beauty of his design, that the tapestry of humanity. Um, and so sometimes the comments that sting reveal a pathway to healing of going, I need to talk about this with someone. Like, why do I resent the fact that I'm short? Like that, like that feels like, foolish like like so so sometimes you can just pay attention to which ones hurt and talking about that with like trusted friends uh, can be reveal maybe some like healing you need to do in your own heart and mind to come into a place of agreement with God rather than disagreement with God uh, and I think having friends that you trust and love you and care about you and see you with God's eyes and not the world's eyes is a central part of that process I think at a real practical level as well, I would, I would encourage you to, you may already do this, but uh, get a handful of verses and memorize them and commit them to memory and get them in your heart and repeat them to yourself. Um, I think music's a big weapon as well. You know, I think there's a way that the Lord uses music to remind us of what's true and to renew our minds. And so, yeah, I would try to lean into those things. It's kind of like when, so when I smoke a brisket for 24 hours and it's just this beautiful, magnificent thing and then my son says, I want chicken nuggets. <laughs> and it's like... More for me. Yeah. Like, uh, okay, his foolishness and youngness, like he's not a good test taste. He's not, I don't trust his taste. Like, I don't, like he's not the measure of quality, right? And so I feel like you're... God, like we are made by God, designed by God. They were works of art that were wonderfully made. And someone saying like, I like chicken nuggets. It's like, well, you're the blind one. You're the tasteless one. It's not, this is your problem, not mine. Yeah. It can be part of that. All right, we'll do one more question. So last one, brother. Okay, how about a fun one? So I uh, listen to you guys every time I take notes. One of the only podcasts I take notes on. I don't know if that's because like home team or because it's really good or, or whatever. Um, so I'm over here trying to think about what, because I always think about questions. Man, I wish I could, you know, follow up and talk to him a little bit more. Uh, so the one thing that came into my head is one time where you looked at Seth and said, I think we're pretty confident people, don't you? <laughs> For whatever reason, you're mm -hmm. talking about your confidence. So in, during these Q&As, during the podcast, during this kind of thing, where are you the 
the least confident or the most insecure? Are you worried about you're going to get a question and maybe use a word that's going to spark a force fire? You know, or are you pretty much confident all the time? Because it appears that way. <laughs> um, I've had a couple people tell me I'm the most confident person they know, so I don't know. Uh, but then I think Seth's way more confident than me, actually. So, uh, Luke, Luke, I think maybe in the last couple of weeks, I was like looking stressed about something, and you're like, uh, what's going on? You look a little insecure. What do you want to talk about it? <laughs> like, like, there's like a, this is different. And so, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, it's honestly, I mean, Brazelton left soccer. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the questions that are like, what's the most, what's the thing, well, the one, like, uh, I, I lock up at some, of, it's like when you ask your kid, what's your favorite thing about vacation? They can't answer you if you said, what are a few of your favorite things they can, you know, so, those questions make me nervous. Um, yeah, I mean, there aren't a lot of questions that make me nervous in this environment because I got him, <laughs> to be honest, um, on that. Um, and I think, I do think there's something, like when you have great people around you, you can be more confident, actually, because you don't have to try to pretend you're everything. Um, I don't know. Am I answering your question? Kind of? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I've got a little spot right here on my hair that I don't love. Uh, I've, I mean, there's other things. but Yeah, I think that operating in plurality like this makes it a lot easier. Even, like, having someone else talk while you think of your answer makes it nice. Uh, same with the Ask Anything thing on Sunday mornings. I think that part of the confidence is rooted in like the people who are closest to me know me very well and I know that if I screw up I'll be corrected like I think every single time I preach Luke gives me critical constructive feedback like right away and it's like I really believe that if he has something to say he's going to say it like there's not like a a hidden thing so like I feel like there's security in our relationship because if he has something to say he's going to say it if he has um, criticism he's going to say it if he has correction he's going to say it so that kind of makes me feel free to like let it rip a little bit because uh, I feel like in this in this type of thing all mistakes are correctable uh, and that doesn't mean they aren't wouldn't be like shameful or a problem depending on what the mistake is so I've, I've, I think that's a big part of it it's correctable there's certain like theological areas that I don't feel like like if we're going to talk about it I'm going to have to do some work on it like uh, like I feel uh, like we're going to do an episode on annihilationism in hell because that's getting popular and I feel like I'd have to do a lot of work to have something to say about that for 50 minutes. Um, there's a lot of like issues that are debatable within evangelical communities like even related to like like the translating of certain words like uh, like uh, like the words like pastor and elder how do you translate those in English because like or deacons, diaconate, presbyteros is elder pastor, our pastor and elders the same, some of that type of like church governance type stuff, I feel like um, theologically semi-insecure about because so much of it's practical, not exegetical and so trying to figure out where does the Bible stop and where does wisdom begin is I think part of that process, so some of those things like uh, it's, it's a difficult one for me I think that um, issues related to 
uh, even like gifts of the spirit because I have so little experience in some of that stuff. Like I have a theological conviction, but like my personal experience is pretty, there's a big gap there. So like I feel like I'd feel pretty dumb trying to talk about a lot of that stuff. So those are some issues that like we haven't done podcasts on largely because I'm like, I'd have to reread some books or something like that, have something to say about it. Yeah, I also feel that, like you have enough confidence to say, I don't know, I need to go do the work. And, you know, so. Yeah, I do I, think that's I, a big I'd part I'd say, I mean, the thing for me, so yesterday at church, um, Seth was leading communion and each service he gave us a chance to confess sin. And most of the sin that I confessed over the course of the three services relates to, Lord, forgive me for uh, being self-sufficient. Forgive me for thinking I have it figured out. You know, so uh, a lot of confidence is a great blessing in a number of ways. It's also a great temptation. Um, so, Well, guys, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening, and uh, we love you all. This has been fun. All right, have a great night. Actually, actually, you know what? Let's pray. Seth, pray for us. Yeah. Father, I pray that knowing more about you and growing in increased knowledge of you would make us humble, not arrogant. I pray that the more we know, the more we learn how much we don't know. And I pray that you'd give us an insatiable curiosity that drives us deeper into your scriptures for a long time. And I pray that as we interact with the non-Christians around us, that we'd be salt and light, curious and hospitable people who faithfully bear witness to your kingdom that is coming. Amen.